Hey, Sarah here. Summer is fast approaching, and here's what I propose. A relaxed and simple summer that offers just enough structure to keep those long, sticky days from melting into chaos, and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. Also, fairy tales. Lots of fairy tales. (laughs) I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer, and I would love for you to join me. Save your free seat at the workshop by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. See you there. Hey, Sarah McKenzie here, and I wanted to pop in before we started today's show to let you know something very important. Our Read Aloud Revival membership is open for registration right now, but only for a few more days. This is the last time we're opening registration at membership in 2016, so you need to get in by 9 p.m. Pacific on Thursday, November 10th, in order to get in this year. Otherwise, you're going to have to wait until 2017 to join us in membership. Listen, I know that it is hard to connect with our kids in this noisy, busy, crazy world we live in, but reading aloud gives us a chance to be fully present. We use three steps to help parents make meaningful and lasting connections with their kids through stories. For all the details, head to rarmembership.com. You're listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that inspires you to build your family culture around books. Hello, hello, Sarah McKenzie here for episode 54 of the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast episode. So glad you're here. Uh, We have some really exciting new things happening at Read Aloud Revival. Have you seen? I'm not going to tell you more about it on the show, but if you haven't been to readaloudrevival.com lately, you should go look and so you can see what I'm so excited about. And while you're there, make sure you're signed up for our free Read Aloud book list. You'll also get our VIP emails that go out every Tuesday morning, and those let you in behind the scenes here at Read Aloud Revival headquarters. I get notes all the time from readers who tell me that they squeal out loud or clap their hands or check their email first thing on Tuesday mornings because they know I'm sending them an email and it's their favorite email they get. So I love I love it when we hear that from readers. You can get in on it too for free. Head to readaloudrevival.com, see what it's all about, check out what we've got going on there now and put your email in to get the book list. Daniels is passionate about many things, his family, his church, good food, gardening, and education. More specifically, he's driven to make sense of educational philosophy and share his experience and knowledge with others. He does that as an educational consultant and speaker, pulling from his previous work as the head of the upper school at a private school in Alabama. James has a master's degree in education, has served as a consultant to more than 35 liberal arts schools, and has spoken at national conferences such as the Searcy Institute National Conference earlier this year, where I had the good privilege of hearing him for the first time. I was blown away by what he had to say about education, the richness of what he shared, and I know you will be too. So I'm just thrilled to introduce you today to James Daniels. James, welcome to the Read Aloud Revival. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on the show. 
there's a lot of things that you do in your ministry that just make me uh, very excited about what's going on in education. So thank you for that. Before we jump in, do you want to tell us just a little bit about your family and what you do there in Alabama? That's uh, one of my favorite subjects to talk about. <laughs> my uh, daughter is going to turn 16 this week. My wife, uh, like me, is from, uh, like I am from Arkansas. Her name is Larissa. My daughter is Alexandria. We did name her after the Library of Alexandria in Egypt. Oh, you did? So you can credit my wife for that. She's, uh, I'm, I'm going to give her a lot of credit for a lot of things in, in regard to what we're talking about today. But Okay, so what kind of books did you share with her as she was growing up that like stand out to you as being particularly warm memories? Or yeah, that's a, that's a deceptive question because, <laughs> you know, my wife and I were reflecting on that just uh, a few weeks ago when we were... We were we were always readers. We all read a lot of books to her, but none really stuck out. And then I talked to my daughter and I said, man, I just remember doing a lot of reading. But I don't remember one specific book or what were some books that maybe stand out to you. So I think the litmus test of our reading is not how well put together our curriculum is, or our lesson plans are, but maybe what our kids remember. Oh, that's good. And I was very impressed by the ones that made an impact on her because I, it, the, the list surprised me a little bit. The first thing she mentioned was were the Aesop fables. Really? Yeah. And so um, that and Frog and Toad were right behind that. <laughs> oh, that's so great. <laughs> that's isn't, so- it, isn't that rich? And like, a, a, But there's definitely a connection between the animals as characters in those. One of the things that we were talking about, I guess the Chronicles of Narnia were a huge part of her upbringing. Again, there's that same pattern of characters and, you know, animals that represent a higher reality. And one of the things that my daughter was uh, talking about a lot is she said, I love the fact that I saw the gospel story in that, but it didn't feel preachy. And so I love that. She actually wrote an essay this week in her writing class on C.S. Lewis and his use of, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe of allegory. Yeah, I remember when I was chatting with Carolyn Lailoglu about the genre of fantasy. One of the things she was talking about is how fantasy strips away a lot of the things that distract us when we're reading about humans or like a reality, right. a, a story right. set in reality and helps us see this truth almost crystallized. Like- a great conversation because, uh, you know, everything about what we're encountering in a daily life if we're Christians and we're uh, folks that want to reach for something more than just the mundane. We've got to learn to enter into those things, but immediately go to something that makes sense and gives us purpose in those experiences. So fantasy moves us immediately without distracting us from too many mundane details. But at the same time, I see a lot of books now that are escape from reality. Mm-hmm. versus moving you from the mundane reality. Because, you know, C.S. Lewis, you know, when he's talking about the woods and the trees and the water and all those things, he's not, even in his uh, space trilogy, he's not moving you to an otherworldliness where he's causing you to escape from reality. But there's something about it that's asking you to look at reality and the mundane and the world, ordinary world around you and think a little harder a little higher about those things. And I think a lot of the books that do that are the books that over time become classics. Are you familiar with the work of N.D. Wilson? I'm not. Okay. So N.D. Wilson has written, he's written a few books for adults, like uh, Notes from the Tilted World and Death by Living, which are nonfiction. Gorgeous. Yes, I've heard of those. Okay. Yeah. 
And then he's written some amazing fantasy books for kids, including The Hundred Cupboards. And in episode 44, I chatted with him about what it was like to write fantasy, especially kind of creepy, scary fantasy, which is what he writes from a Christian perspective. And one of the things that really struck me is how he talked about how truly good fantasy isn't an escape from this world. It helps you live in this world and see the magic around you in this world more clearly. I thought that was so beautiful. Yeah, and I think Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, they are really stoked about that idea. I mean, I I think this is the importance of uh, why Harry Potter had to start in the real British world, because nobody would believe it if he started at Hogwarts. And the same thing with, uh, I think Tolkien does a masterful job that, you know, if he started with Gandalf, you wouldn't have a place to enter into the story. He enters into the story with hobbits. That's our entry point. People that are planting gardens, they're living an ordinary world. And I can't remember who it was, but someone said something about, you know, in the past, they would take ordinary people and they would put them in a divine reality. Nowadays, folks are starting with the divine reality and trying to move to the mundane world and they're disappointed with it. I had never thought of that, but that's true of Andy Wilson's Hunter Covered series. He starts with an ordinary boy living in a very rural, ordinary town. I think it's called Henry, Kansas. He wakes up to the magic around him. Yeah. Yeah. So that I know when you were speaking, one of the things you said when I heard you at the conference was that the more metaphors we bathe our kids in, the better. So why is that? Like, tell me about metaphor. And because that feels like it ties in here to what we're talking about with the divine elements of story. You're spot on there, Sarah, because what uh, poets do, good poets, what they do is take an ordinary experience that you encounter. They uh, move you up to something divine. They exalt those experiences and they ennoble those experiences. They move you to like an ecstasy and they tell you that these are heavenly type experiences. But at the same time, they don't stop there and they enter back into the world. And this is incarnational. Metaphors, what they do is move us in the same way of saying, I'm taking an ordinary experience. I'm building an abstract connection to something else that you normally wouldn't put together. But I'm saying it in such a way that I'm bringing it back down and I'm using something that's an analogy of something everyone recognizes and experiences that will communicate well. And so, you know, traditionally education has been about how can we teach kids to approach something to not only analyze it, but synthesize it for meaning and purpose and be able to communicate that well in a uh, very vivid and clarified way versus creating kids that have experiences that are frustrated and are in angst because they can't communicate them well because they're seeing, you know, kids are seeing more than what their senses are accounting for because they're made in the image of God. And metaphor and surrounding with metaphor gives them the tools and the ability to express what's going on and cultivate that from an early age. Would you agree then that a good story is a metaphor? So when we are bathing our kids in metaphors, we're giving them lots of poetry and stories? Absolutely. That's why I say Literature and poetry have always been the hallmarks of just great education and just whether it's a homeschool setting or a school setting, because it cultivates something that's deep, a deep need in the human psyche, if you want to call it that, or in the human soul to be able to make sense of the world around me, to be able to communicate well, and then ultimately be able to contribute to the conversation that's around me as I'm communing with other human beings. Oh, so good. Okay, so as we're thinking about stories and metaphors, poetry, and ways 
to give this gift to our children. One of the things that I've noticed lately is a kind of elitism in book choices. Like I think a lot of attentional parents, we have the good intentions of giving our kids the best stories that we can find because we have good intentions there. But sometimes I think we get caught up in choosing just exactly the right books instead of sort of spreading this wide feast instead of being sort of elitist about, you know, we read these kinds of books, but not those kinds of books. I read The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction earlier this year and was just like, so... That's a good book. You read it. Okay. Yeah. I pulled out one of his quotes, actually. He says, for heaven's sake, don't turn reading into the intellectual equivalent of eating organic greens or shifting the metaphor slightly some fearfully disciplined appointment with an elliptical trainer of the mind in which you count words or pages the way some people fix their attention on the calories burned readout, some assiduous and taxing exercise that allows you to look back on your conquest of Middlemarch with grim satisfaction. How depressing. This kind of thing is not reading at all, but what C.S. Lewis once called social and ethical hygiene. And then he says, read what gives you delight, at least most of the time. And do so without shame. And even if you are that rare sort of person who is delighted chiefly by what some people call great books, don't make them your steady intellectual diet any more than you would eat at the most elegant of restaurants every day. (laughs) How would you help a mom finding herself worried about her kids not reading primarily the classics, let's just say? Let's say they have they read some classics in school, whether they go to school or they're being homeschooled, but they're also reading a lot of lighter stuff on their own or together as a family. Can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, I I love the analogy there because I think all great analogies for education are found in food and eating. You know, it's just like if we were going to put the pressure on our family to eat a grand feast every single night. You know, it would be like uh, if we're going to eat in the same way we would do for special celebrations every single day. I mean, that would break our backs. Whether it's a school or at home, the most important element of that is intentionality. Is the book that you're selecting really something that you've thought through by way of being purposeful for your child in this setting, where they are, or did you grab it off a book list of someone telling you, if we all read the best books that we've ever been exposed to, what would that look like? And so I think a lot of times, we kill ourselves by trying to be the most excellent. I like the the word you use in an elitist way. I mean, there's a lot of good lists out there. And there's a great books list. There's a good books list that's been written by a few people for early on. But when I talk to parents and when I talk to schools that are talking about curriculum type decisions, I tell them my biggest fear is not what books you read and don't read. My biggest fear is that you're not taking the books intentionally for what you're specifically wanting to train and what you're specifically wanting to use to nourish your child's soul at this point in time. I love that because it helps us remember that our kids aren't projects. So we're not just filling them with these certain books because we want it. They're not like a recipe, you know, like (laughs) we fill our children with these certain books and they're going to come out thinking just the right way or be just exactly how we hoped they would. It's They're humans and they're images of God. And so it's more like a feeding and nurturing rather than putting in the right ingredients and hoping that it comes out just the way we hoped, right? One of the things you had said was at the conference was that education is the leading out. And so I wrote this down word for word because I was so moved by it. You said that our role as teachers, and I would uh, like just extend this and say our role as parents then is to create an atmosphere that says, do you trust me? Take my hand. We're going to go somewhere cool. And I thought- right. 
oh my goodness, that's what we do when we open a book with our kids. We say, do you trust me? Come on, let's get it. Let's dive in together. We're going to go and see something really cool. Yeah, I love that. I think uh, it's mutual respect, mutual trust, because we're talking about people that, you know, as teachers, we, we're human beings that are trying to dignify other human beings. But, you know, I, I take a step back from that, that the way that people enter into a trusting relationship is by way of shared experiences. And so for our children, our shared experiences are not intrinsically around the fact that I happen to be their dad or their parent and they're my child and that we have this natural bond. I think a lot of times that we need to go back to something deeper that, you know, we're all human beings. And so what are the shared experiences that we all have that we can draw off of and come to this together? And I don't want to say peer to peer because it sounds like I'm I'm striking the authority of the parent or the teacher. I don't mean it that way, but I do know that when my daughter sees me in a real state of wonderment and I'm enraptured by what I'm about to talk to her about, Mm -hmm. or on the other hand, if she comes in and she's just excited about what she's about to tell me, immediately I'm engaged in that. That's the first step. The second step is, you know, what I'm about to share, what she's about to share corresponds to reality. And I think that's where trust is born. Not only that we've been someone that they can trust by way of a model of virtue and, and the way we treat them, but also in regard to not losing that curiosity and that wonder. And, and as kids see that we're excited and we haven't been jaded and, and we're doing the hard work and we're anticipating it too. I mean, that's it's contagious. Yeah, it's more like being allies, I guess. I like how you said it doesn't really usurp your authority because we kind of have that natural, I think, as parents, we go, wait, I can't be peer to peer with my child because I'm not my child's friend, first and foremost. I'm their parent. Right. But my thought that really resonates with me because what I feel like in my own home is that when I create this atmosphere where it's more like a book club and less like a teacher student relationship, when it comes to reading books together, we're kind of hooking arms to jump in and yeah. just dialogue about this book together. There's a whole different interaction. The richness of our conversations and our experience of reading that book together is so much richer than it is when I take on the role of, I'm going to teach you all the good things you should think about this book we're about to read. (laughs) Right. And I don't see, you know, we live out several acres just right outside of Birmingham. And I think about the moments when I walk outside and we had this big loggerhead turtle that was walking across our pasture and the thing was huge. And I'm running in the house and like, you've got to see this before he gets to where he's going and hides, you know, so we can't see it. But the same excitement, I think, is not a different excitement than when I'm entering into whatever I'm teaching, especially with books. It's the same experience. It's the same human approach to things of saying, listen, there's something in this that I'm excited about and we need to see together. And I tell parents and and teachers all the time, if you can't bring that excitement about that book or about the reading that you're about to do, and of course, there's days that we're tired. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying in general, if you can't bring that to the table, then why are you reading it in the first place? Mm. Because this is the difference between, I think, engaging teaching and teaching out of duty. And again, I don't want to say, you know, present this paradigm like every day we get, you know, we read these things or we read these books. And there's times that I've read or my wife has read to my daughter that we're just worn out at night. But the other side to it is I I think there has to be at some level that trust comes from the fact that if you really want me to love this, I need to know that you love it yourself. 
We'll get back to the show in just a minute. At the beginning of today's episode, I mentioned that what I propose for this summer is a relaxed and simple plan that offers just enough structure to keep your days from melting into chaos and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. And what summer wouldn't be much, much better with a whole bunch of fairy tales? Well, I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer, and here's what we're going to talk about. First, how reading fairy tales can make your summer easier. Yes, easier. We want to take things off your plate this summer, not put more on, right? <laughs> fairy tales can make your summer easier and more fun. I'm also going to share the fairy tales I recommend for every age and the tippy top thing you can do to make sure your kids make delightful memories this summer. It is way less work and way less pressure than you think. The free workshop is happening live online on May 7th, 2024, and you can save your free seat by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. And yes, there's a replay, so make sure you register even if you can't join us live on May 7th. Again, text the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. That brings me right to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is the difference between reading for understanding versus reading for analysis. And you um, right. you talked about this at Cersei, and I would love for you to share it with our listeners. I can't take credit for that. There's a gentleman out of Regents that spoke to a friend of mine about that concept. He brought it to the table when I hired him in Memphis, and we talked about that a lot it made sense to me of what happened after the 16th, 17th century in, in history. And that is that we began to stop asking what things, what impact that things could have upon us. And we started saying, how can I use this for my own personal goals? Mm. And so C.S. Lewis says, and I think it's the weight of glory. He talks about the idea that in the past, the mark of the wise man was to conform his soul to the divine total reality around him. And I'm paraphrasing here, but the mark of the wise man in the modern world has been that we try to take total reality and conform it to our own souls. We're saying, I got to take this book because I'm trying to create this great curriculum. Or our children say, I need to know what you want me to learn from this content-wise, so I can take the test and pass it. Mm, right. And so that would be overstanding where I'm entering into a book and saying, what can I do with it? Understanding would be more along the lines of, I walk into a situation, I'm saying, what is this trying to tell me? Whether it's a piece of artwork or it's a book as the author, like, what is the author saying? Aristotle said, you know, it's the mark of a wise man to entertain a thought without accepting it. Our children and even we walk into a situation and we're immediately want to assert our opinion or our personal preferences about the book. And I've been there numerous times with a lot of different children, including my own, to say, what did you think about the book? I didn't like it. I didn't ask you about you. <laughs> yeah. I asked you about the book. What is the author trying to say? Is it noble? Is it valid? And so a lot of times it has to do with submitting to the fact that, you know, someone has created something here 
whether it's a piece of music or art or a book, they created something, they're trying to express something well. For a moment, I'm going to suspend my agenda of whether I like it or not. What is it about this that made them create it, that gave them the passion to say these things? What are they saying? And so that can take a couple of forms. One is that I think we're too quick to try to critique and teach our kids to, you know, try to find information or in some philosophical way, you know, jump to that conclusion. Like break it apart, take it apart. Yeah, take it apart. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the plot, the theme, the, you know, all the literary criticism, same thing with poetry, we're trying to, you know, get them to dissect it. But what I'm talking about is something that would be a little different. And that is I pick up a book and look at the cover, you know, Mortimer Adler talked about the idea of how to read a book. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the first things he said is, look at the cover, you know, look at the back. What's the blurb? What's written on the outside? You know, look at the table of contents, skip to the back. Just approaching a book in that way, you know, on a complicated level, but just for kids, you know, one of my favorite books that I wish I would have had as my daughter was younger was is Al Moon. And what I love about the book is it's so well done by way of illustrations. And, you know, just there's so much that's just providing a feast for your soul that's laid before you before you even open the book. That's the type of approach I'm talking about where you're saying, I'm not going to like immediately try to jump to what I can glean from this book as much as putting myself under like there's something presented to my senses that I want to sit under the feet of this person and say, what is it that you have to say? Because that's not only a reading skill, that's that's a life skill. Yes, so much. I was just thinking, this is really teaching the art of listening and empathy. Because when mm-hmm. you read a book thinking we're going to analyze it, especially if we yeah. say you're going to have to write a book report on this. And so the child immediately starts tearing apart the different parts of the plot or the theme or the character arc right. or whatever. They come at it from such an I'm standing over you type of mentality or thinking about what they're going to say next. Kind of like when we're having an argument with our spouse and we're like yeah. forming our argument while the other person's talking instead of actually listening to what they say. So when we open right. a book, exactly. you just say, what do you have to tell me today? And just like, just what do you have to speak to me? We're practicing the art of listening and empathy, thinking, getting ourselves into someone else's shoes and just that kind of looking at the world from there. Yeah. And that's, and that's a great way to put it. I love that analogy. There is a time and a place. I don't want to put it like as if we're trying to come up with this idea that you don't have to talk about plot and characters and define dynamic character and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. flat character and all that. That's not what I'm saying. It's not an either or it's let's don't put the cart before the horse. Let's start with the whole and the listening and the submission and the empathy. And and then we'll move to the analysis. We will get to those questions. But after that, let's come back around and say, looking back over your first encounter of just kind of seeing it overall and analysis, let's synthesize that for meaning and purpose. And if you were going to explain this book or the truths that you learned to someone else, what would that look like? So then a question we often get here from our listeners is how to determine which books to assign our kids to read versus which books to read with them and kind of how to choose what we're reading. Do you have some thoughts on that you could share with us? Absolutely. I talked to so many people that asked me that question about what book should I read my child? And I say, what specific goal do you have this year at this age for your child by way of the skills that you want them to learn, by way of the ideas that you want to present to them, and then, uh, and, and then what specific knowledge are you wanting them, you know, how does this tie into knowledge? I think all three of those, especially at the early age, in that sequence. And so when people give me a list of books that we need to go through, that I need to go through, the first question I'm asking is, who, 
why this order of books and why these books? And so I think we need to get better about being intentional. And that is we have a paradigm of saying, I have certain goals in relation to my child, these students in terms of skills, ideas, and knowledge that I want them to leave this year with. What are those? And then what books would be most conducive to cultivating those sensibilities, those habits, that understanding this year? That's so good because that takes the parent or teacher and has them look at the child first rather than the curriculum first. So instead of like putting our child through this, you know, we have this fourth grade curriculum, this fourth grade set of books we were going to read always for right. fourth graders. But we just kind of shuttle our kids through. We look at the child first as this image of God as this whole person and say, what do you need to feed you? And then we use books as a tool to teach the child instead of the other way around. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's why. Curriculum's never been anything more than just a path to where you want them to go. I've had a lot of schools call me and say, you know, what would you use in fourth grade for a child? And I said, it really depends on, you know, where they've been, where they are, and where they're going. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> that would be in the same way if, if you said, James, I'm trying to get home out here where I live. Can you give me your path so I can get home in a more efficient way? And I would say, Sarah, I live in Alabama. Why are, you, why are you asking me for my path? It doesn't make sense for where you are. And I, I think we've got to be a little more aware, a little more savvy about the way we assign. And my daughter is 15. She's about to go 16. And there's books that she reads because we know who she is by way of her conscience and things that make an impact on her that I would not want other kids to read that may not be emotionally or intellectually as mature or immature as she is at this point. We have to do that all the time. I mean, there's certain movies that my wife and I, we have friends that go see that I like from where we are at this stage in our life, we just probably would not go see because it wouldn't be edifying for us. It wouldn't be nourishing to our soul. And uh, it's not a condemnation of what they're doing. But it's, it's saying for, for my family, these are the goals that we have. And these are the things that, that, that are on the forefront of our mind right now. And what are the things that we can do intentionally that would move us to be a better family, to be a better human being, to be a better person? And I think we need to apply that a little more effectively and a little more intentionally to what we're doing in education. So good. It reminds me, this is a little bit of a pivot, but it reminds me of, I was at a homeschool conference. A couple of months ago, and I went up to, are you familiar with Steve Demi from Matthew C? Yes. Okay. We so, actually, I use that curriculum with my daughter. Oh, you do? Okay. So yeah. I went up to Steve to ask him a couple of questions I had about my son's math. And, and so I, I told him, my son's struggling a little bit with math. And his first question to me was not how old is he? Not what grade is he in? He didn't know any of that information. He just looked at me and said, okay, so what can he do? And so I started like rattling off the different kinds of skills he could do now right? and where he was getting stuck. And so he kind of walked me over to the right book and said, okay, I would start about halfway through here and just get, you know, do these lessons yes. until he knows them and then move on here. As I walked away after we were done, I realized he never asked me how old my son was or what grade he was in because that was completely irrelevant. He wasn't asking me like, this is the fourth grade thing you do or sixth grade actually is where he's at. But he, he'd say. Developmentally, where is he? Yeah, exactly. Because the only yeah, important yeah. thing to know no, is I where is your child that. at now and what's the next step? And it just started with the child and ended with the child. And I thought, whoa, that's a whole paradigm shift, you know? 
Yeah, and that you know uh, the the child center education has gotten a bad rap in some way because it means in some way that we're not trying to move them on from where they are. Right, right. There, there are child center approaches that would say just let them be a child, let them play, don't push them, don't challenge them. You know, and so but that's child centeredness in the best way, and that is developmentally as human beings, we're in certain places in our life, and so the teacher I always think is a, a psychologist. In regard to our number one goal has to be developmentally, where is our child, where are our students in relation to where we want to take them? And we bought into this modern myth that if they're in a certain, number one, all children develop exactly the same at the same time, which is crazy when you think about it that way. <laughs> I mean, when you think about, you know, I'm in my 40s right now and man, I'm looking at the widespread place. You know, when you think about other when I'm thinking about other 40-somethings around my wife and I, I mean, we're all over the map as far as where we are in relation to our thoughts about, you know, religion, politics, all of that developmentally, you know, where we are in our relationship. It's widespread. I mean, you know, to think that my wife and I are in the exact same place that everybody else is or vice versa, that would be dehumanizing. I think the same thing with what you're saying there. And that's what I always loved about what I've sensed from the philosophy of Matthew C is that they're working on a basic set of skills and they're thinking developmentally. And I think we're going to think more developmentally about our children. Yeah, that's so true. And with regard to book lists, the idea of grade level book lists can be dangerous there because it's the same kind of thing instead of taking the child Absolutely. where they're at. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, James, I have a feeling you and I could chat all day, but I want to honor yeah. your time. I thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been Wonderful. Well, I appreciate that, Sarah, and I'm glad that, that I can be a part of it and appreciate your ministry and what you're about. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. Hi, my name is Josiah, and I'm seven. I live in Minnesota, and I like boxcar children because they learn to live in the wild. My name is Ella, and I live in Minnesota, and my five years old, and my favorite book is Thumbelina, and she is as big as a thumb, and she made friends with a a swallow. (laughs) My name is Ella, and I live in Minnesota, and I'm four years old, and my favorite book is Mighty Chuck, and I like it because he gets dirty, and he has wheels at first, and then when he gets clean, he has huge wheels. What is your name? Ruby. How old are you, Ruby? Two. Where do you live? <laughs> and what is your favorite book? <laughs> The day, day, Jimmy Boa, ate the wash. It's a wash. What is your favorite part? <laughs> I like <laughs> when the pigs <laughs> eat the kids' lunches. <laughs> My name is Caleb, and I originally was from Minnesota, but now I'm in South Korea. I'm six years old, and my favorite book is Star Wars by George Lucas. My favorite one is A New Hope. I like it because 
Obi-Wan dies, but then Luke and Leia sort of, like, Luke finds out later in the story something about him and Leia that make them related to each other. And that's what I think is the best part of all Star Wars. Hi, I'm Caitlin Strauss, age seven, and my home stage is Pennsylvania. My favorite read aloud is Mr. Popper's Penguins. I like Mr. Popper's Penguins because it is funny. And my favorite part of Mr. Popper's Penguins is when Mr. Popper couldn't figure out who his two penguins were. So he got white paint and painted their names on their backs. Their names were Captain Cook and Greta. And it's funny. To me, it's really funny. Hello, my name is Charlie. I live in Virginia. My favorite book is the Mysterious Bank Society series. And my favorite part is when Mr. Bennett and the rest of the gang comes to rescue the four children. The reason I like it is it's like these four children, which are secret agents, are trying to, in one book, it's get secret information, another, it's rescue his friends, in another, they're trying to stop Mr. Kern, but get captured. And I am 10 years old. Hello, my name is Jeannie May. I live in Virginia, and I'm six years old. And my favorite book is Ramona and Her Father. And my favorite part of it it's when Ramona tries to save his father's life, which is stopping him from smoking. My name is Emily, and I live in Virginia, and I'm three years old. What's your favorite book? And I have Biscuit Bluff. Okay. And my favorite part is the beach. Fantastic. Thank you so much to all of you kids. You know, Emily, we like Anna Hibiscus around here too. In fact, we like Anna Hibiscus so much that we're having the author of it, her name is Atinuke, on the podcast. That will be a lot of fun. You know what? Her name, Atinuke, means loved before you were born. Isn't that wonderful? I bet you were loved before you were born too, Emily. Hey, if your kids haven't left a message to be featured on the show, they can do that at readaloudrevival.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the page and you'll see how simple it is to leave a message. And hey, if you aren't following the Read Aloud Revival on Facebook and Instagram, make sure you find us there. We're there all the time sharing great articles, new resources, and giving away lots of books and other bookish goodies. So we're Read Aloud Revival on both platforms. Just follow us, say hello. We'd love to connect with you there. That's it for today. Go build your family culture around books.